If you would again, take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 35. And we will today be looking at verses 1 through 15. Genesis chapter 35, 1 through 15. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in the ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. When Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the name of the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him. And he fled when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakath. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your, from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on him and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are so grateful for your word. And we pray that the reading of your word would greatly bless us. May your word be hidden in our hearts. We pray now, God, for the preaching of your word. Pray that you would be with this, your servant, that the words spoken are true and are uh, rightly explaining this passage. We pray that in all matters you would rule and overrule. We pray that we may learn from you that we would um, see Jesus and know him better. We ask all this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, throughout the course of our study in Genesis, there have been a number of themes which have been visited over and over again. One is the theme of God's providence. 
God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all of their actions. Over and over again, we have seen how God has preserved and governed His people through a variety of means, whether it was visions or dreams, or the ram which was stuck in the thicket, or the actions or perhaps inactions of men. Throughout all of this, God has been preserving and governing His people and their actions. Another theme that we see throughout Genesis is that of covenant. God making a covenant with His people. God had cut a covenant with Abraham. That covenant was later extended to Isaac, promising great blessing to them, fruitfulness and children, blessings which would be for all the nations. These covenant promises are renewed again here with Jacob and ultimately are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've also seen over over again the faith and failures of God's people which are particularly illustrated in the life of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, each of them walked by faith before the Lord, Lord, each of them having been called by God to be his particular covenant representative, and yet each of these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each of them failed at various points. Each of them sinned against God. Abraham, in seeking the promised son by his own power. Both he and Isaac, in their deception of foreign kings. Isaac, in his favoring Esau's food over spiritual development. And Jacob, in his deceptions. And then last week we saw in his failure to properly protect his family as they came back into the land. Back at Shechem, a place that Jacob probably shouldn't have even camped at, Jacob passively attempted to navigate the abuse of his daughter while his sons overreacted and caused the potential for greater harm for the whole household. Nevertheless, in all of our failures, God's providence is at work preserving and governing. And since all these things were given for our instruction, as the scriptures tell us, we can learn from them and we can be encouraged that as God's people struggle with sin, as God's people fail, God is with them and does not leave them nor forsake them, but continues to work in and through them. And so this is a great encouragement for you and I as well, isn't it? That even as we fail, God is still working in and through us. And so we can be encouraged, even as we read of the failures of the patriarchs, even as we examine our own hearts and see where we have fallen short of God's glory also. So although Jacob and his sons had greatly erred at Shechem, God was faithful to them. And you'll notice, quickly renews the covenant with Jacob. As he calls for him to return to Bethel, build an altar there and live there and worship the Lord. So God graciously blesses his, blesses his people even as we do not deserve it. And so we jump now into our text in verse 1, chapter 35, 
After the events of Shechem, God calls Jacob to return to Bethel, to the place that he had come to him before. Now this, this call from God to Jacob, brings a change in focus. There's a change in the focus of the narrative as the story of Jacob is now beginning to wind down. We're coming to the conclusion now of Jacob's story. And here, what we're seeing is God fulfill Isaac's blessing on Jacob and the fulfillment of the Lord's theophany. Uh, the Lord coming to Jacob before at Bethel. So just as with Abraham and just as with Isaac, it is the Lord who initiates his covenant promise here now with Jacob. Or in this case, really what we're looking at is covenant renewal. He's renewing the covenant with his chosen covenant partner, Jacob. And so the Lord told him, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now you'll note that in this passage there are four Hebrew imperative verbs in verse 1. Four imperative verbs. Arise, go up, dwell, and make. So these are the four imperatives. So this directive to return to to Bethel relates back to the theophany which had been previously given at that place. And so first there is the command to arise, and then second, go up. Arise, go up, go up to Bethel. Get up from the place you are in. Get up from Shechem and go up to Bethel. So this reiterates the command which had been given at Paddan Aram when he had left Laban's household. Remember, as he he essentially fled from Laban, he was told to return to the land of his kindred. So this is a a reminder of that. Recall back in chapter 28, Jacob's vow, which records the establishment of Bethel as a place of worship, if the Lord would bring him back to his father's house in peace. This was the vow which Jacob had made in chapter 28. He has now returned to the land that the Lord had given to his father, and so it was now time to fulfill the vow that he had taken. So Jacob was to go up to Bethel. Now, of course, this speaks of the geography of the place, not the direction. Bethel is roughly a thousand feet higher in elevation than Shechem, and so he literally needed to go up. Even though, even though it's south from the place he's at, he's to go up because uh, elevation-wise, that's actually what he's doing. Uh, when we, we, we may speak of going up north, But the scriptures often speak of going up in terms of elevation. And so the ascent up to Bethel, though, also illustrates something for us as well. It illustrates Jacob's need for spiritual ascent. Jacob needed to seek and trust in the Lord. And so he needed to go up to Bethel. And so Jacob was to fulfill his vow. He was to return to Bethel, dwell there. He was to build an altar there. Which is to say, he was to build a place of worship. A place to worship the Lord. 
Shechem was not his home, and really never should have been his home. And recent events concerning Dinah and his sons prove that case. This was not the place he was to, to remain. The fact is, Jacob had erred in settling in the shadow of Shechem, of allowing his family to have such friendly dealings with the Canaanites there. The danger to his family was not brought about, first of all, by Dinah, nor by the murderous reactions of his sons, but first and foremost, it was because he did not go where God had originally told him to go. His home was to be in Bethel. This was the place that he had vowed to God. This was the place that God had called him to and was now again calling him to. Jacob was to dwell at Bethel. He was to build an altar to Yahweh there. Jacob's original vow, which again is recorded in chapter 28, had been in part to provide a place for worship to the Lord. This This was part of the vow that he had made. And so the Lord is commanding him now to fulfill his vow. Permanent settlement in Shechem could only have meant intermarriage with the Canaanites eventually. And of course, this is clear from the king's actions. That's exactly what they wanted, remember from last week. But this could not be done. Jacob's family was going to need to turn wholeheartedly to the Lord. They were going to need to seek him in humility and in repentance. They were going to need a place to worship God and to be purified before him. And so Jacob instructs his house. Look at verse 2. He says, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. So the people were to rededicate themselves to the Lord. They were to repent of their sin. They were to turn away. So you'll notice, notice that they are to repent. They were to turn away from their idols. They were to turn away from the false gods. And they were to turn to the Lord their God. And so in a sense, there's a sense in which repentance involves renouncing anything which may hinder or tarnish your relationship to the Lord. It is the turning from sin... And turning toward God, toward the Lord Jesus Christ, as your God, as your Savior, and as your King. As it is, there is no place for false gods. There is no place for false worship among the people of God. The Lord cannot abide with a split allegiance between the things of this world and Him. God's people must put away those things. They must put off that which is false. In addition, the people were to be renewed in the Lord. And therefore, they were to undergo a purification process, which involved bathing or washing, and then also changing their clothes, so that the defilement of idolatry may be purified before the Lord. But those who would come before the Lord must come purified. Now we may wonder at this point, who is it that Jacob is speaking to? Who is his audience? Was this just his wives and his children? 
Now, the patriarch's audience actually was his whole household. And this would include his family, servants, and anyone else who had joined the clan, which would include the slaves which they had just taken from Shechem. In other words, slaves who were pagans, worshipping other gods. And so the whole clan, the whole household, was to put away any and all foreign gods. And they were to be purified. These two commands illustrate what is needed to worship God. The scriptures state this over and over again, that the people of God are to be holy because God is holy. Consider, again, also the the first two commands, the Ten Commandments, which clearly forbid the worship of other gods. You are to have no other gods before me. It also forbids the making and worshiping of images. And the people had broken these commandments, and so purification was required for those who would worship the one true God. Listen to Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. It says this, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. True worshipers. True worshipers of God are those who have been purified, those who have been cleansed. And this is true for us also. You see, you and I need to be purified too. Now at this point, you might think, well, how? What do I do? What is the Lord Jesus Christ who has already done this for you? Jesus has purified His worshipers by His own blood. Christ has cleansed you from unrighteousness by faith in Him. In fact, just as the altar and the utensils and even the people were were sprinkled with blood so that the people of God, uh, this is a picture uh, that they may be purified. We're purified by the blood of Jesus. In fact, this is what the waters of baptism pictures. The cleansing of God's people from sin. The sprinkling and the removing of defilement. It's not the water that does that. It's the blood of Jesus that has done that. You, beloved congregation, you see, it is Jesus Christ who cleanses His people. It is Jesus Christ who makes you and me suitable worshipers of God. Jesus purifies you. Thus, it is not that we make ourselves clean. It's not that we clean up our act before we come to God. But it is that God cleanses us, and it is God who makes us able worshipers. And so notice, too, that it was the whole household of Jacob, his family, his servants, and those slaves, all of those in the household, regardless of their ethnic background, all of them were to put away the foreign gods, all of them were to undergo the purification rite, all of them to worship the one true God in purity of heart which is then symbolized in the putting on of new or cleansed garments. Verse 3, Jacob continues his speech. He says, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar. 
And this was, of course, the reason for the purification. They were going to go worship the Lord. And so Jacob was to build an altar there to God. The God who answers in the day of his distress. The God who has been with him anywhere he has gone. This is who he's building the altar to. Now, in the text here, this is actually a new expression in which Jacob remembers the incidents of Esau and Laban. In each of those situations, God was present as God had promised him. The Lord was acting providentially. God was ruling and overruling in all matters. God had indeed promised to be with Jacob. And had been throughout this entire account. When God says, you will be my people, I have placed my mark on you, you belong to me, then you and I can trust that this is true. You really do belong to him. This is why the Apostle Paul can write in Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? If God is for us, who can be against us? Jacob needed to be reminded of this himself. Just as you and I need to be reminded as well. We need to remember this. Jacob needs to be reminded, in, in particularly in light of what had just occurred, particularly in light of the, the new threats now to his family. The once peaceful shepherd family has now become known as murderous warriors by the other nations around them. And Jacob now more than ever needed to find comfort in the promises of God, that God would protect him. And so in response to the call of God and the instructions of Jacob, verse 4, the people gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Which is to say, they acted in obedience. They gave up their foreign gods, their idols, the rings that were in their ears. Now much, if not all of this, would have been part of the plunder from Shechem. Here we see, as we had seen before, Jacob's failures. Here we see Jacob recover something of his spiritual leadership. All the items of false worship were removed, and they were buried under the terebinth tree near Shechem. This was the sacred tree which was associated with Abraham. Now, why bury these items? That's sort of unique. Why bury them? Why not destroy them? Why not burn them as you see in other parts of Scripture? Well, perhaps Jacob just wanted to quickly dispose of them. They're leaving. They were going to leave quickly from this place. There may not have been time. Uh, Maybe this seemed like the most expeditious thing to do. Just quickly bury them and be done with them. Whatever the reason is, the, the burial of the idols and the other precious metals was a rather ignoble end for them. They were quite literally dumped and covered with dirt. Like you would with any common trash. Sort of a fitting end for them, isn't it? This is what they did with the idols. Later, of course, the leaders of Israel would burn them, but here they're buried. And so the gods that had been sat upon by Rachel when Laban was searching for them are here finally denigrated in their final burial place in the dirt. Thus, Jacob closes the chapter on Shechem 
He looks forward to the realization of the promises of Bethel and fulfilling his vow. And so from here they journey. They journey toward Bethel. The people have uh, prepared themselves. They've gotten, they've put off the, uh, the uh, false gods. And they travel now to Bethel. And then we see verse 5. We'll note this. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember how we said that Jacob needed to trust in the Lord? That the Lord does not leave him? Well, what what does the Lord do here? Well, he provides a terror which, which fell on all the other cities. Consider consider this in light of the fear of Jacob in chapter 34. Remember where he he rebuked his sons saying, You have brought me trouble and made me sting before the Canaanites and Perizzites. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed both I and my household. Remember, Jacob is afraid. And on the one hand, Jacob was right, wasn't he? The actions of Simeon and Levi had gotten around. And the other nations really were considering coming out against him. This was not an imagined danger. The danger to Jacob and to his family was very real. But, as we would expect and as Jacob should have expected, the Lord provided protection to his people. The Lord is always true to his promises. And so here... What does he do? He brings terror to the nations, such that they cannot come out against Israel. Again, the Lord proves himself faithful to his promises. Over and over again, he is faithful to his promises. Now, this is important to note because, again, Jacob and his family were on the move. They're on their way from Shechem to Bethel. And anywhere along the way, they could have been attacked. The Lord provided protection for them. So they make it to Bethel. They make it because God had protected them from the dangers of the other nations. God was ruling and overruling. God ensured that Jacob would fulfill his vow. God ensured that his covenant would be fulfilled. And so verse 6, Jacob travels to Bethel. It's noted it's also called Luz. Now this former name, Luz, is mentioned repeatedly throughout the period of conquest later on. And this is a reminder of the place's previous name to the people of God. It reminds the original audience, and the original audience, of course, is that that, that generation uh, from the Exodus. And after that, it reminds them of the Lord's relationship to Israel. It reminds them of God's continued providential care of all that takes place for them. Both in the days of Jacob and in the days of the Exodus. And even now, down to our own day. We're reminded of God's providential care. Now, Bethel was to be a place of special significance. Testifying to God's special relationship with Jacob as the patriarch of Israel. And so Jacob and the clan uh, traveled to that place, and there we read that he built an altar. Now the worship of of the covenant people is to be different from that of the Canaanites. Israel is set apart in their worship. It's different from the surrounding nations. 
And so this altar would serve as a witness to their separation. It would symbolize their claim to the land based on God's promises. You remember that this is not the first altar that Jacob had built as he returned to the land. Previously, uh, Jacob had planted his flag, as it were, in the shadow of the city of Shechem. He built an altar there, but this was not the place where this was to have been done. This was the place, Bethel was the place where God had made his promises to him. Bethel was the place that Jacob was to plant his flag, as it were. And he called the name of this place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, or more literally, God of the house of God. This was the place where God had come to Jacob. This was the place of God's promises. This was the place of God's loving relationship to him. God had revealed himself along with the angelic host, which is why the Hebrew is in plural. And so Jacob here builds an altar. He builds it in the place where God had visited him before. And this was the place for Jacob and his people to worship, which again is the reason for that purification earlier. Now, notes in verse 8, a death. It says, well, it mentions the, the aged and faithful nurse of Rebekah, Deborah, dies there. It seems like sort of this random little insert into the text. It is also interesting to note that the nurse is memorialized by the scripture, even as the matriarch herself isn't. There's nothing said about, about her death. There's nothing mentioned about Rebecca's death, but Deborah, her her nurse, is mentioned. So this is kind of surprising, right? It seems strange. Why isn't Rebecca remembered like this? Why is this nurse remembered? And maybe another question is, how did the nurse end up with Jacob anyway? Where did she come from? First of all, it should be kept in mind that Rebecca had promised to send for Jacob at Haran. Remember, she had promised that she would send for him. That, that never happens. But now Jacob has returned to the land, and it seems that Deborah was sent. Perhaps she came with Esau, and she met him. Jacob was not around when his mother died. This is probably the reason why uh, she never sent for Jacob. She, somewhere in the time that Jacob is gone, uh, she dies. And so because of that, there's, a, there's no obituary for her. And that may have something to do with the reason that she's not mentioned. It also may be because of the fact that she deceived Isaac. But Deborah's death marks the end of that previous generation, the generation of Rebekah, the generation of Isaac. And so it's noted that she's buried under an oak below Bethel. She's probably buried in a hewed-out cave in a place called Alan Bakoth which fittingly means the oak of weeping. And the mourning of Jacob and the memorial raised for Deborah gives evidence of great heartache for Jacob. So Jacob, he's returned to Bethel. He, uh, he built an altar. And now, now the narrative turns to covenant renewal. So he's back. He's done what he's been asked And now the Lord appears again to Jacob. 
Now, the, the narrator provides a connection in the text between the first time which God appeared to Jacob, when he was fleeing from Esau, and now this second appearance, after having returned from Paddan Aram. In both theophanies, the provision of the covenant promises made to Abraham are repeated. So there's repetition, fruitfulness, nations, kings, blessings to all the nations, the possession of the land. And again, like at Peniel, Jacob is given a new name. Remember, his name had already been changed. Your name is Jacob, no longer shall be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. No longer will he be the heel grabber. No longer is he called the deceiver. But he shall be called Israel, which means God fights. So the reiteration of his new name emphasizes, again, his new status as God's chosen man. He's God's man. And this is, so again, this is reiterated prior to the covenant promises being renewed. And in some senses, what God is doing is reminding Jacob, this is who you are. And Jacob already knew this. This is who you are. You're no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. And this is how he's identified. And then in verse 11, God identifies himself again as El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. And this ties back to the covenant promises made to Abraham and also to the blessing of Isaac upon Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. And so all, 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 there's a lot of things happening here, right? There's a lot, of, a lot of events which had occurred earlier in Genesis which are sort of coming back together here, okay? And so like the previous covenant promises, there's a, another repetition, a reiteration of the promises. The promise to be fruitful. Now Jacob has already, already been personally fruitful, hasn't he? I mean, he already has a bunch of children, but the promise is also that his, his children would also be fruitful. Abraham was told that he would be the father of nations, and all the nations would be blessed through him. That kings would come through him. Now the reality of these promises are, are now more and more coming into view. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, who's now Israel, he has, he, he's been very fruitful with sons. And then those sons, they will be fruitful as well. And so we're seeing the, the, the promises of God sort of coming to fruition. But the promise of kings, that, that's an aspect of the promise which will not be repeated again until the time of David. And that's because that's when that portion of the promise is really going to be realized. So a nation would come through Jacob. And the the seeds of that nation are already in his sons. And of course a nation requires land. Which of course is reiterated in verse 12. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God has given the promise. He's given the promise of the land, the land of Canaan. He's given it to Abraham and to Isaac. And now he's repeating it again to Jacob. 
This land promise is being transferred to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants, which would come after him. And the language that's being used here is the same as the covenant made with Abraham. And it echoes the same blessings giving, given to Isaac. Which is then to say that what we're talking about here is the same covenant, the same blessings which was to follow generation after generation for all those who are children of Abraham. As the New Testament teaches us, we are children of Abraham by faith in Christ. God then went up from him, it says in verse 13. Again, similar language is used concerning the Lord's ascent from from Abraham as well. Finally, we read that Jacob set up the stone pillar at Bethel. Now, stone... um, often marked the place of significant events to set up a a pillar of stone. This was particularly true for Jacob. And it, it may be that Jacob was restoring a stone that he had previously set up. Remember, he had set up a stone then. It may be that he's, he's putting it up again. But here he erects the pillar. He pours out a drink offering and oil on it. So this is an act of worship. He's worshiping. He's fulfilling the vow that he had made before. God had blessed Jacob. God had reiterated the covenant promises to him. And so how is Jacob to respond? He responds in worship. Well, isn't this the Christian response too? Isn't this how we respond to what God has done for us? God acts for us and we respond in faith and in worship. All the preparations which God had called for were done reminds us also that God gives the requirements and how he's to be worshipped. Jacob did what God had called him to do. And so the worshippers of God are not free to worship any way they see fit, but only in the ways the Lord has prescribed. Again, Remember, Jacob had earlier built an altar at at Shechem, and he called it El Elohim Israel, God the God of Israel. But both the tragedy there and the covenant renewal at Bethel underscores the point that we worship God only in accordance with his dictates and God's agenda for us, which is to say Shechem wasn't the place that he was supposed to be doing this. Jacob learned... That God was to be worshipped when, where, and how God commands. For us now, we worship when, where, and how Christ has commanded us. True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. As I say, we worship by His word and spirit. This is why, by the way, the church must always be careful of the elements of worship. and and, And also the way that worship is conducted. Because this is not a small thing. God takes his worship seriously. Nevertheless, even as as Jacob messed up, God helped him get it right. And that's wonderful to know, isn't it? That even as we mess up, God helps us. Well, Genesis is about God's establishment of his people. First, through the nation of Israel... In the covenant promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but ultimately through the promised seed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the King of kings who was to come. And in so doing, God worked through signs, promises. He worked through His providence. God was ruling. God was overruling all that took place. The Lord had initiated His plan of redemption, and He was bringing that plan to fruition. So again, as we've gone through Genesis, we've sort of slowly seen that plan of redemption begin to unfold, uh, like like a flower slowly opening. His plan was coming to fruition even as his people faced various adversities. That's one of the things that's really amazing. God not only had his plan, but his people knew the plan, and yet they faced troubles all along. And so even as the patriarchs, the heroes of the faith falter, they're weak in their faith at points, their failures here are used to teach and strengthen their faith. And this is often true for you and I as well. Because God is continually sanctifying us, isn't He? And He uses even our failures to teach us, to strengthen us, that we may turn from our sin and turn to Him. And so even after the fiasco at Shechem, God was faithful to Jacob. God had called him to return to Bethel. God had renewed the covenant with him and called him to worship Him there. God called him to continue in the special relationship which he had with him. Well, beloved congregation, you and I falter often in our faith, don't we? Aren't we weak at at points? As I often say, I judge you in light of my own character. We fall into sin. We succumb to temptation. We are tempted at points to fix our our own problems. And yet, our Savior Jesus Christ calls us to worship Him, to renew the covenant with Him. And so the goodness of the good news of the Gospel is that God has done for us what we ourselves could not do. By His own blood we have been saved, and we've been called into His kingdom. Beloved, we have been set free from sin. Therefore, repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn and be renewed again in Christ. Your salvation then is not dependent on human exertion, but on the tender mercies of God. And isn't this the wonderful news of the gospel? That the Son of God has set you free from sin and misery. He has ushered you into His kingdom by faith in Him. You have been justified in Him, and He has promised to never leave you and never forsake you either. Just as He didn't forsake the patriarchs, He does not forsake you. And really, this, this is humbling, isn't it? And what, So what's our response? Well, what we are driven to do is what Jacob was driven to do, and that's worship Him. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, trust and rest in your faithful Savior and your God, knowing that His gospel promises are for you and for your children, for those who are far off and for those who are near. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Know that His promises are true. Let's pray.
Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank, thank, are so thankful that your, all of Your Word was given for our instruction. And that even as we uh, study uh, the, the life of Jacob, uh, we see how You were at work in his life, and we see how Jesus is at work in our lives also. We do confess, God, that we are sinners. But we are so grateful that Jesus came to save sinners such as us. We are so grateful that we have been justified by His blood. And that Jesus is the one who purifies us, makes us able worshipers. And that You call us to Your worship, which is the only response we have, really. We are so grateful, O God, for our salvation. We pray that we may be those found faithful, walking humbly before you. We ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake.